0: Diligent this week to wrap everything up precisely at. And that way. What's the procedure if a Sunday school teacher tries to filibuster? Is there a. Uh, I guess I would fall to the security team. I think we out we try We, and I'm sure we will someday. When I'm not part of the problem. (laughs) You know, science says that if you're not part of the. Now, how does it go? I wasn't prepared for that stupid pun. (laughs) If you're not part of the solution, you're part of the precipitate. That's what it is. Precipitate. Precipitation. (laughs) So <laughs> that's why I keep my wife in the front row. Hey Siri. All right. Seems like we have a majority here. Jeff, since we're swapping comedy, could you pray? Amen. So last week we covered um, Jesus proclaiming the new covenant with the figurative body and blood, um, which is alluding to what we're actually going to cover here, the, the literal, uh, his literal body and blood. Um, there was the assertion of the apostles to remain faithful despite Jesus' prophecy that they would desert him. The prayer in the garden, uh, his arrest and his trial before the religious leaders. And um, as we go through... Something that just really struck me as being so wonderful is the participation, not willingly, but the participation of all these groups in the redemption of mankind. Their plan is not to actually participate in this way, but the Lord's plan is such. And I think this is the encouragement to us that His will will be done. We have the opportunity to participate we will partake no matter what, but we have an opportunity to be much more intimately involved to both give thanks and to give glory and honor to him. That same opportunity was, was available here. Um, it wasn't taken advantage of. But nonetheless, as we see things unfold here, the, the will of God is not thwarted by what's taking place. Um, The hearts uh, and the attitudes of the people involved are completely opposed to him, but that doesn't actually cause anything to fail. And I think that's an important reminder. One, that the Lord's ability to redeem is for anything, but to be very careful that as we see the Lord use things and as we see the Lord redeem things, to not therefore say, well, that thing therefore is good. No, that's just, it's a measure of the Lord's ability to redeem is, is incredible. It is so powerful. But what he uses does not change, transmute, and become good merely because he uses it. He can use a donkey, which is good news for me, which means he can probably use me up here as well. Um, I'm going to read just one verse for starters. And it's a, it's a continuation of the same sin cycle and the same problem of the old testament um and it's the same problem that apart from lord we would continue to to fall under so starting from john 18 verses 28 then they led jesus from caiaphas to the praetorium which is the um the residence of the governor which is where pilate is they led jesus from caiaphas to the praetorium and it was early, and they themselves did not enter into the praetorium, so that they would not be defiled, but might eat the passover. So these are the actions of the the men whom John the Baptist condemned as a brood of vipers. And I didn't have time to cover um, Matthew 23, where Jesus pronounces the eight woes, but one quote of Jesus from Matthew 23, verses 24, is when he addresses them as you blind guides. And indeed here they are guides. They are guiding in two ways. They're guiding the promised Messiah and they're leading him to deliver him to be killed by the Gentiles. And they're also leading the people whom it was their responsibility to teach the word of God to in rebellion. This is how they are guiding in their blindness. And it's a fear of rebellion of Israel against Rome it's a fear of having to submit to the word of God. It's a fear of having to submit to the Messiah that they instead choose to rebel against the word of God. And that's, that's so much of, of what Jesus proclaims in Matthew 23, verse 24, where he says, You blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel, that they look for the minutia of the law. They look for these little tiny details which have their place but they ignore the law's greater demands. So the illegal nighttime trial of Jesus full of false witnesses, there's no problem with that. That is completely acceptable. And it has no impact on their self-righteousness. But they are careful not to walk into the home of a Gentile for fear of becoming defiled and unclean. It's, it is, it's, grievous to see the messiah arrive and these are the people who are there to greet him but far more importantly the messiah is not put off by this jesus's heart is not changed by how their behavior is but that he continues to pursue and i think this is what's so important for us as as we struggle with our weaknesses as we struggle with sin That we recognize and that we own when we fail and when we fall, but then we do not take such a, we we do not create this image of our mind that our sin is so horrible that it completely undermines and therefore overpowers the Lord, because that is an attitude of pride that says, "But I have done something, and it is unacceptable for me to be forgiven." That is to reject what the Lord has done. And it is to not take into account just how much he has done and how much forgiveness there is. I think that's, that's, the, that's the importance and the value of going over these scriptures to see the degree of, of lostness to the world. That is still something that's true today. But the forgiveness is, is there. And I think the, the contrast that we often have to get over is the enormity of sin, yes, sin is enormous, but we need to stop from there and turn our eyes back to Christ to see the, the far greater enormity and how much His holiness and everything that He is and that sacrifice, how much that displaces and eclipses the, the evil of sin. His goodness and His love, His graciousness and His holiness absolutely dwarfs evil. That's not saying sin is less bad, but it is saying our God is so much bigger. John 18, uh, verses 29, going on. Therefore Pilate went out to them. This is, they won't go in. So Pilate walks out. Pilate went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered and said to him, If this man were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him to you. Which is wonderful. Wonderful. Jesus must have done something or we wouldn't have been here, right? Verse 31. So Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him according to your law. And the Jews said to him, we are not permitted to put anyone to death to fulfill the word of Jesus, which he spoke, signifying what kind of death he was about to die. The double talk, Pilate isn't really fazed by that, and he's not taken in. They basically, he asks, like, what's the problem here? And they say, well, there must be a problem. And Pilate says, well, that's fantastic, then go deal with it. This is like, Daddy doesn't have time. Like, you, if, if you won't adult to me, then you go and play your games over there. They, they persist, and here, right, in this game, because they, they have nothing, they have, they have no real basis on which to take Jesus and present him to Rome, to which Rome would say, we agree, this man this man must be tried. There's nothing there. But the providence of God is, is taking place here because if the Jews... Had the freedom to execute Jesus without fear of Roman reprisal, the Jews would have continued along the lines on which they had started. So with a religious trial, um, they, they try to well, they try to make all kinds of things stick, and they can't figure out how. They're, they're slipping and sliding on their own deception and lies. So they try to make the idea of Jesus has blasphemed be the actual... Um, What's the word? Charge. Thank you. Words. Words are important. That's the charge that they try to bring against him, that um, he's taken the name of God in vain when he said that he was the Christ. And from Mark 14, 62, where Jesus says, You shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Well, based on Leviticus, there was an exact way to deal with a blasphemer, So this is from Leviticus, verses 24, verse 16. Moreover, the one who blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall certainly stone him, the alien as well as the native. When he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. But Jesus' death was not to be by stoning, but it was to be after the form of the bronze serpent. This is turning instead to Numbers, verses 21. Verses 8 and 9, The Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard, and it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he will live. And Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on the standard, and it came about that if a serpent bit any man, when he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived. There, are, there is so much symbolism. There is so much preparation in both the Old Testament but also just throughout history that the Lord has made as a way of desiring to communicate his heart so that we would have a certainty in who he is. And all of that history, it, it humbles me when I read it, just how careful he is to create these images, to set these things up, because, <laughs> again, it's, it's, it's easy to read Scripture when Jesus is telling the apostles, I'm going to die, and they say, I, I don't get it. And it's, it's easy for me because I, I know how it ends, but I don't know that about my own life. And the Lord does the same thing with me where he's like, it, it's okay, I will provide for you. I'm like, I, I don't understand. I don't understand. And it's just this thing of like, that, that's fine, but then at least trust and have faith. From John 3:13, Jesus himself saying, No one has ascended into heaven but he who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. It's so, it's so amazing and so beautiful that with the attitude and the mindset of the people who are in this this moment of just prior to the crucifixion, their mindset is not in participating in this incredible ceremony, and yet the Lord has brought them there, and they are performing an important task. Um, talking just before um, I, I came up here, there was something that I hadn't understood from the, um, the actual beating um, from Mark where it says uh, after they passed the judgment that Jesus is blasphemed it says some began to spit and to, uh, at him and to blindfold him and to beat him with their fists and say to him prophesy and that which is something I had not understood is part of the forgive my pronunciation here is part of the Semacha, where the high priest as part of the atonement of the nation of Israel would place his hands upon the scapegoat thereby transferring the sins of Israel to it so these are people who are participating in that imagery. Jesus is not a scapegoat. He is the Passover lamb. But again, the same way that the the high priests are a lesser image of Jesus, the altar is a lesser image of Jesus, the temple. The all of these, the Passover lamb and the the Passover um, the ceremony and the meal—all of that—is this repeated image of Jesus. Even here, we have this, this image where, not because of intent and sincerity, but because of the Lord's ability and the Lord's plan, that they are participating in this. And I think how significant that is to, to be able to answer questions. Like as we continue to go through, why doesn't he say anything here? Why doesn't he say anything here? Because there's a purpose that's being fulfilled. He is, taking on the sacri- he is taking on the sins in order to be that proper and perfect sacrifice. This isn't just a random that Jesus walks in and says, well, I guess I'm the sacrifice now. But he is submitting himself to all of these different, these, these pictures in order to fulfill in order to fulfill these promises that were significant in the Old Testament, that were huge, the ability to be atoned. And yet, because all of those activities depended on humanity, and because that is the point of of inevitable failure, because we we are insufficient. And here, he is the one who is taking it all on. When I got to teach this material at His Hill um, several thousand years ago, the, the two favorite assignments that um, I gave were um, having to do a word study on propitiation and explain what is propitiation, um, because they had to type, and I got to read, I, I got to sit and just read pages and pages of people explaining why the sacrifice of Jesus is such a big deal. And then the final paper was explain why is, it, why is it necessary for Jesus to be completely God and completely man, and then explain if you take one of those things away and then take the other things away, why does the sacrifice now mean nothing? And getting to sit through and just, again, be refreshed in my own spirit of people speaking to me about what is the significance of this. And here it's, it is that he is, he is taking on both parts of the covenant— He is taking on God's part and man's part and fulfilling it perfectly for everyone involved. He is the perfect mediator. Going back to um, John, Pilate also, just in terms of unwilling participation, Pilate doesn't want any part of this. There's a bunch of history, but he's basically learned, like, don't get involved. Don't touch it. Like, everything in this place that he's been sent is basically this tar baby, like, low profile, and just try to survive, and then try to leave. So he doesn't want to interact, and he doesn't want to be in the middle of this. Finding out that Jesus is from Galilee, Galilee he says, perfect, not my jurisdiction, and carts Jesus to Herod, because this is, there's, a, there's an interesting, but potentially very, very boring um, <laughs> political layout and uh, geography where um, Herod has some jurisdictions over some regions and um, not. Not that politics are confusing today. Um, But there is this opportunity for Pilate to basically say, I don't need to do anything here. Herod then mocks Jesus by putting the purple robe on him. Again, purple being a color of royalty and kings. Herod's doing it out of mockery. And yet, in that, they, he is correctly recognizing Jesus, even though he's not intending to do so. He is giving honor, but again, the important point is that does not make Herod's activity good, but it means that the Lord can still redeem. And then he returns Jesus to Pilate, who still doesn't want to be in the middle of this, but this is where the crowd decides you are the middle of this. And there are so many attempts. Um, that Pilate has where he he doesn't want to execute Jesus. So he orders him scourged and beaten. The soldiers call out, hail King of the Jews, and they slap Jesus in the face. And afterwards of all of this, Pilate reasons having horrifically abused this innocent man because he can't find anything wrong. Surely it's safe to release him now because nobody can tell me that he's done anything. They sure are mad. We can't figure out why because no one will say anything. So at least if we massively abuse him and mock him and beat him then this shame should be enough to address some unspeakable nothing but the chief priests at this point call out for Jesus to be crucified John 19 starting from verse 10 So Pilate said to them do you not or said to him Jesus do you not speak to me "'Do you not know that I have authority to release you, "'and I have authority to crucify you?' "'Jesus answered, "'You would have no authority over me unless it, had been given, "'unless it had been given you from above. "'For this reason, he who delivered me to you "'has the greater sin.' "'As a result of this, Pilate made efforts to release him, "'but the Jews cried out, saying, "'If you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. "'Everyone who makes himself out to be king "'opposes Caesar.' Therefore, when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the pavement, but in Hebrew Gabatha. Now, it was the day of preparation for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Behold your king. So they cried out, Away with him. Away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So then he handed him over to them to be crucified. What's so important here, this is Jesus is not passively allowing, but he is actively maintaining and he is actively moving himself towards the cross. And it doesn't potentially look like it because he doesn't seem to say or do anything but I think that's the significance because there are so many things and so many moments along the way where he could have stopped this. Just looking at how he teaches and how he reproves the various groups that come to try to trap him in scripture. The religious trial is something that he could have shut it down so many ways and embarrassed and shamed them for the supposed wisdom that they have because he has done that before. And that's the same thing, the, the various accusations, where um, what's brought, brought against him is, well, he says it's, uh, they, w- we shouldn't pay taxes. And you go back, and it's like, no, that's exactly what he didn't say. He said, show me the coin. Whose picture is on it? Caesar's. Render to Caesar what Caesar's. If the coin is Caesar's, then pay the taxes. But it's not his will, but the Father's will that is to be done. With all of this, to, to see, I think, the, the significance and the preparation. Because it's one thing, most of us have had to have uncomfortable conversations at one point or another in our life. And when you know that circumstance is coming, if it's coming within a couple hours, it's usually easier. But if it's something where you have to wait a longer extended period of time before you can have an uncomfortable conversation, it's that just, okay, just sit around and wait a while. And it's difficult and it weighs on us to understand the context, the preparation that has gone into Jesus's heart for this. I wanna look back at Isaiah 53. Timing wise, this is about eight centuries prior and it says this, Isaiah 53, Who has believed our message, and, whom has the arm of the Lord, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of parched ground. He had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgression, and he was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off, uh, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due? His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death, because he had done no violence. Nor was there any deceit in his mouth, but the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, we will see his offspring. He will uh, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days, and the good, good pre- pardon, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong. Because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. The not general knowledge, oh, the crucifixion and the rejection will be difficult, but the specific knowledge was there beforehand, before Jesus was born. He had an understanding of what it was that he would go through and did not, did not step back. I'm going to go back to John 19 and then to Psalm 22 after that because I think the contrast between what's happening and how, the depth of how much Jesus understood what would take place I think is just it is, it is incredible. John 19, verse 17, they took Jesus, therefore, and he went out, bearing his own cross to the place called the Place of the Skull, which is called, in Hebrew, Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two other men, one on either side and Jesus in between. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It was written, Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. Therefore, many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews were saying to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his outer garments and made four parts, a part to every soldier and also the tunic. Now the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast off but cast lots for it, to decide whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture. They divided my outer garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore the soldiers did these things. Looking at Psalm 22. And I think the, the significance and the, the anguish of the Garden of Gethsemane I think is very, very much more understandable when we read these things and when we read Psalm 22. Jesus isn't ignorant. He doesn't know what, he he isn't ignorant of what will happen. He understands. And it's because he understands that's where that need for prayer, that need to go to the Lord comes from, to, to go to his father. Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. O my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I have no rest. Yet you are holy. O you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel, in you our fathers trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried, and they were delivered. In you they trusted, and were not disappointed. But I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men, and despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me, they separate. With a lip, they wagged the head, saying, Commit yourself to the Lord. Let him, let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, because he delights in him. Yet you are he who brought me forth from the womb. You made me trust when upon my mother's breasts. Upon you I was cast for my birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. Be not far from me, for trouble is near. For there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They open wide their mouths at me as a, ra- uh, as a ravening and a roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a pot shard. My tongue cleaves to my jaws, and you lay me in the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me, and a band of evildoers has encompassed me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look. They stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and they... And for my clothing they cast lots, but you, O Lord, be not far off. For you, uh, O you, my help, hasten to my assistance. Deliver my soul from the sword, my only life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth, from the horns of the wild oxen you answer me. I will tell of your name to my brethren, and in the midst of the assembly I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him for help, he heard. From you comes my praise in the great assembly. I shall pay my vows before those who fear. The afflicted will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth will eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust will bow before him, even he who cannot keep his soul alive. Posterity will serve him. It will be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They will come and will declare his righteousness to a people who will be born that he has performed it. The more time we spend in scripture, the more we are, we are humbled by the need we have, by the understanding that the Lord has for our need, by the love that he still has. Because the more that we, we look and we learn, the more we understand that, that we are loved beyond measure. We are, importantly, we're loved beyond fairness. We are loved beyond any kind of what we would call reasonable balance, but it is a infinite love that he has for us. Turning to Matthew 27. Um, Matthew 27, verse 45. Now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon the land until the ninth hour about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of those who were standing there, when they heard it, began saying, This man is calling for Elijah. Immediately one of them ran, and taking a sponge, he filled it with sour wine and put it on the reed and gave him a drink. But the rest of them says, Let us see whether Elijah comes to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. and The earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. Now the centurion and those who were with him, keeping guard over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, became very frightened and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. This is such a a monumentous event that the Lord knew it would not be celebrated with honor at the time. That Jesus Himself knew what would take place. And having proclaimed the new covenant, I think it's significant that it precedes the old covenant. Being completed, um, being wrapped up, just this section here where it says the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, signifying that as he died and as the Father received him, the the separation between mankind and God was removed, and it wasn't removed by by the hands of men. The there is no account of the priests running into the temple and tearing the curtain themselves which would have been an opportunity for them to understand what was taking place and to, to, to praise and to say, Hosanna, and by taking that activity. But it was the Lord himself who removed that, that physical representation of the barrier because the little, literal barrier of sin had been removed. There's, there's so much more here um but there isn't time so i want to i want to finish by going to hebrews again hebrews chapter 12 Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. It is, a, it is a blessing. It is a marvelous thing to come to the end of ourselves because that is where we receive the Lord and the enormity of his completed work. We don't, under, we don't receive it in full understanding. The, the reality of what's completed is there. And it is not something where there is a barrier of entry, where if you haven't studied, if there are certain languages you don't speak, then you may not receive it. If you have any kind of disability, then you're excluded. The, the simplicity of what we have and how easy it is to receive, it is such because Jesus has paid it all, because he has done everything. And the, the privilege for us that as we look back and as we, as we sneer at people who didn't understand that he was God, we are those people in, in, in very similar ways because we look, and with hindsight, we say, well, yeah, but you should have understood. But it's the same that's true of us, that our life hasn't been finished yet, but he is still God. And the provision that he has for all of us it is irreversible. His faithfulness cannot be, cannot be lessened. And so the opportunity that we have is to say thank you and to move forward, not because we have any idea of what's going to happen, but because we understand we have met the author and the perfecter of faith. It is a, a mighty God that we serve. And... Again, to realize that if we have received Jesus, then there is nothing left to add. We have been made perfect and complete. And it's not because we feel perfect and complete, but it's because of who he is. That the sacrifice is acceptable because who he is. The sacrifice is eternal because he is eternal. The sacrifice is extended to all because he died for all. The sacrifice cannot be removed and cannot be negated because there is nothing greater than him that could overpower him and thereby undo what he has done. This is the blessing that we have. It was given to many while they were in ignorance and the the state of those who received did not change that it was extended. And so for us, the privilege is being able to, to spend the time that he has chosen for us to have on earth in receiving the revelation and the explanation of what he has already done. Only to then stand before him and to continue to receive and to continue to learn and grow, which we will never actually stop doing. The the depth of of how much he has accomplished, we will we will never finish being amazed at. I'm gonna pray. Jesus, we thank you so. We thank you for your work. We thank you that your love has overcome everything. Your love has overcome our sin. Your love has met the demands of righteousness and holiness and perfection. We thank you. We thank you that you are everything that we need, both as our sacrifice, our high priest, as our hope and our life and our future. We thank you. We thank you in your name that you reign, that you are sovereign, and we pray that as we would go forward this week, as we would see the reversals and the impossibilities presented to us in this world, and these assertions that you are insufficient, that we would receive those, we would see those, and instead we would choose to trust. We would respond in gratitude for who you are, and that we would look forward to you proving that your victory is inevitable. In your name we pray, amen.